welcome to another history show with Chris Sidwells. I'm Gary. I'm filling in the uh, the very large shoes that John has has vacated while he enjoys a, a much needed rest. He calls it, he call it retirement. Um, I'm sure we'll speak to him soon. But tonight, Chris, we are going to talk about cycling's very first super team and a book that uh, or a, a team that you very much wrote the book on. Yeah, the team yeah. decades. Um, of professional racing, the won over 900 races, um, including the Tour de France, numerous uh, Paris-Nice stage, stages, um, one-day classics, uh, featuring riders ranging from British luminaries like Sid Barris and Billy Billsland through to Jan Ras and obviously Um Chris, we are talking tonight about the team TI Rally. Yeah, um, subject to my latest book, the latest, uh, the second of the Cycling Legends illustrated books, TR, uh, Cycling Legends Zero Two, TI Rally. Uh, the world, cycling's first super team, I've called them, and I, I, I do believe they are. They, they changed the way um, teams raced. Um, before TI Rally, teams were built around one rider, and that rider was the lead in every race. But TI Rally changed that. They were. Uh, a, a team that did have leaders going into races, but they had riders capable of winning and they could shape shift. And if the leaders they didn't have the ego, so they saw the opportunity for somebody else, they would work it for somebody else. And it's the way teams race now. So I think it, it, they also had the backing and the, the, the technological backing and the Servista course and everything had to be excellent. This marginal gains philosophy was there in TI Rally. And it's a, a, a terrific story about strong characters, a different way of management that wouldn't work nowadays. Um, but but that's what I've written about. And it, it, it is a fascinating story. It's a British story, but with it was a, the Tour of France was won on a British bike. That was the ambition of the project, but with a Dutch team. Yeah, it is a fascinating story, um, and it's. It, I would. I would. I will subsequently recommend the book to anybody. But it's interesting that today we think that to set up a, a you know, a world-beating cycling team, you just need a, a very rich benefactor, <laughs> a good, you know, a, a good uh, manufacturer pumping millions of euros, um, and, and off you go. But the genesis of the team was was quite unusual, and, and in these politically charged times of the twenty first century, uh, we actually had a team that. Um, set or its its inception was really on the basis of a bicycle team um, wanting to take advantage of the commercial opportunities of joining the European Union to sit <laughs> next to Europe. Yeah, I mean it's ironic now, isn't it? Yes, in in, uh, in the early nineteen seventies, it was known that that Britain would join the EEC, the European Economic Community, which was a predecessor of the EU in nineteen seventy three, and before that, this will be familiar. Um, although Rally was known worldwide and had uh, manufacturing plants all over the world, it couldn't sell its bikes in uh, the in the in Europe because of the high tariffs that the EEC put on quality products from outside of that group. So once they were going to join the EU, once Britain was going to join the EU, there was an opportunity for Rally to sell their bikes in your in bike mad Europe. They started a marketing campaign, but. One man working there, the great David Duffield, the first voice of Eurosport, he was a talented marketing man. That was his main job. He was the man who created Moulton, uh, turned Moulton, a small wheel com commuter bike, into a fashion accessory in the 1960s. And he knew that the way to sell bikes in Europe was to sponsor a professional cycling team and try to win the biggest races. 
And because of that, they they decided they didn't want to throw money at it. So, 1971, when the project was launched, they sponsored a team that Rally already owned, a bike manufacturer, T.I. Carlton, Carlton Cycles of Workshop, already had a team, and they tried some races in Europe. And they had some. It was it was very much a softly softly approach, wasn't it? And uh, but they had some good showings in the early season races in 1971, and um, a lot of racing being in the you know being in the break and being visible in races in the Côte d'Azur and, and, and the lead up to Paris Nice. Um but but that I think was was very much a baptism of fire for the team, wasn't it? Oh yeah. I mean they were travelling to races and this lasted for a long time. Rally like I said didn't throw money at this. They were based in Britain and travelling to the likes of uh Paris Nice and the Tour of Switzerland the day before. And they were like back on the ferry the night the night of the race. Um and, and Paris Nice caught them out. They'd done so well in the early season races on the Côte d'Azur that in 1971, Paris Nice accepted their entry. They entered more in hope than expectation. And they got in, which uh, they had to provide then a minimum of eight riders for the race. So they had to get the the seven riders they had that could ride the road, plus the world track sprint champion, Gordon Johnson, who they also sponsored. So poor Gordon Johnson had to ride, he didn't even have a, a Carlton bike, had to ride Paris-Nice with um, Eddie Merckx and Roger de Vlamink and all those great riders. And I mean, he didn't last long. The team, the rest of the team didn't last long, but Derek Harrison came through with a good high placing, showed well in some hilly stages. Brian Jolly too, who was a good rider, got great potential. Uh, and they did well enough for 1972 for the project to continue and rally, uh, give some more money and uh, changed the name to T.I. Rally and the first T.I. Rally kit. It wasn't like the iconic one that came in 1974, the jersey. It was just a version of T.I. Colm. But uh, they progressed into 1972, did okay, little bit more money, and then 1973 was where they, they really tried to uh, to do a little bit more. Well, 1973, I mean, the, the standout for me was actually was the show at Milan-San Remo, um, where um, Dave Lloyd um, and oh, I forget his first name, Baton. Phil Baton. Phil Baton. Um, sold for 170 kilometers, um, which really made people sit up and take notice of them. Yeah, that was the first time that the j- journalists and people in 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 cycling in those days perked up and looked at this British team and the idea of a British team taking in part of the races seemed really. Uh, good. I mean, I spoke to Dave, I spoke to Phil, and they just decided to, George Shaw, the team manager then, said, try and show up, try and get in a break. And I thought, well, we won't wait for a break, we'll just try. Five kilometres gone, 295 to go, off they went down the road. And uh, the Tifosi loved them. They stayed away over the Tocino Pass. They were caught on the other side and quickly dropped, but it didn't matter. TR Rally had been out there, the name was down in journalist notebooks, and it started to become a thing. This was going to be part of European cycling going forward. Yeah, um, and actually, and getting that notice, the, the team subsequently went on that year to ride their first uh, Tour de Suisse as well, where again, um, riders were were active, um, and, and again, just get, getting the team notice and, and making the mark that they're very much um, you know, serious players on the big stage. Yeah, and they were invited, uh, Phil Baton and Dave Lloyd were invited to take part in the Baraki Trophy yeah. uh, at the end of the season, which is being uh, rejuvenated next year. We're going to have a Baraki Trophy two-man team time trial around Bergamo, which was a, was a great event. Uh, and they were third in that 
you know, there was only a field of five or six teams, but, uh, you know, they, they were just behind Gimondi and uh, Rodriguez, you know, world champion was Gimondi, uh, which was a fantastic performance. Um, also, the 1973 Tour of Switzerland is important because some other British riders made their name. Um, there was a joint team sponsored by Holdsworth and Bantel and Sid Barris, Super Sid, dear friend of mine, uh, <laughs> who's still riding his bike and still won't go below a 39 chain ring. Even though he lives in the Dales, he's 70-odd, and he has to go up a massive hill every time he goes home. Uh, and he won the first stage of the Sora Switzerland and wore the yellow jersey, and that was the first time any, any Brit had done that. By, by the, the 1973 um, season, David Duffy was looking ahead and was looking for a new manager to to take the team to the next level, wasn't he? Um, yeah. And for all that you know, Sterling job had been done to get the team established, um, 74 was when all the change happened, wasn't it? And uh, the, the post arrived, didn't it? Pardon the yes, the, the post did arrive, yeah. Um, David had been a commentator, because part-time he was a commentator, a marketing man in the week, and he commentated at events. And one of the races he commentated on was the London Six Day, sponsored by Skoll. And he'd seen Peter Post, Peter Post, as they call him in Holland, the king of the six days at the time, uh, racing. And then Post became the uh, the manager of the race. And he said to me, David, well, I was lucky to see him uh, quite a few years before he died and talk about T.R. Rally. And he said that he, Post was the man that they were looking for. He needed somebody as a manager. George Shaw was good really safe pair of hands, but they needed somebody if they're going to take this big step into Europe that knew European racing, that was well-respected and who had a vision. And Post did have a vision for TI Rally. Unfortunately, that vision didn't include any of the British riders. Is is, is the 74, especially into 75, we, we saw that more and more where the, I think the British riders were, were, were less less attuned to his uh, his ways, shall we say. Yeah, he, he he had an idea of how a team should go. And he had uh, this vision that he would make a team that was all equals. That's what he wanted to create. Because he told me, I was lucky enough to interview him on a couple of occasions many years ago. And he told me he had this idea that he wanted a team that had no particular big star, but they'd get used to riding for each other and racing for each other. Um, but he says that the British didn't seem to buy into it. And also one of the British riders Brian Jolly said the, the other Brits were always thinking about home and the conditions they lived in weren't good. There wasn't a great deal of money for the team. You know, they didn't. They lived in a cold place, a community house in in uh, in a suburb of Ghent. The racing was hard. Of course, doping, amphetamines, and all that must have played on their mind. Post didn't want them anyway, so to test them, he thought that anybody that was going to come through will have to show. You know, they can fight my brutality. So he didn't give them the correct jerseys. Um, Sid Barris had done really well on the south of France in 1974. And he'd had some good placings and things like the Grand Prix de Nice and stuff like that. And they had to be at Het Volk next day, Het Newsblad as it is now. And Sid told me this, that uh, Post flew all the Dutch riders back to to, to Brussels and then to Ghent, and he made uh, Sid and the other British rider that had been on the south of France with them drive the team a van back to Ghent overnight. <laughs> we arrived at Ghent at two o'clock in the morning. The only place open was a Ghent brothel. Um, they paid for a room and slept in it, him and Dave Lloyd. 
uh, Brian says that that, that, that uh, Sid says that, that Dave nearly had a nervous breakdown <laughs> staying in this place, and he boasts that Sid boasts that he's this still the only two English men that spent a night in a Ghent brothel and slept. <laughs> That's all they did. <laughs> I think that is a, a quintessentially British thing, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, it was a bike rider, isn't it? And then Sid says, oh, neither of us finished next day. Yeah, I, I think that, that clash of cultures kind of came to a head later in the season, during the Tour de Suisse, where, uh, well, the Tour of Switzerland, whatever you want to call it, uh, when the British riders um, dropped out um, to take part in the British nationals. And I think at that point, the, the British national champions jersey wasn't viewed with quite the same... Um, prestige that perhaps it is today. Um, no, that, it, I think that was a, a, a sign, not quite a, a nail in the coffin for a lot for some of the riders, but it, it was a sign that uh, um, traditional British ways were perhaps not welcome in, in this what was now becoming a, a Dutch team. No, that's when Post lost his patience. Um, he did eventually accept one British rider through to 1975, uh, Dave Lloyd, yeah. who'd. Been, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd been really good actually. He tried his best, but he, he he didn't like the way they were living over there, and he hadn't come back. Um, but Rally actually intervened and spoke up for him and said that if Post wanted this next budget, they had to take Dave Lloyd. Um, and it was good because in 1975 um, he was, you know, he really came stood up to the mark. He 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 showed that he could do it. Yeah, Dave Lloyd tells a story in the book where he was he'd been in the break. I can't, I can't remember if it was Paris Nice or whatever, but he'd been in a, a break with the likes of um, Freddie Martins and Eddie Merckx, yeah, um, and had done his turn. He said, and Merckx handed as the the can of coke, yeah, was passed across the through the uh, the group that was passed on to him. Um, he said he just he felt like that was total acceptance. Yep, yeah, yeah, and he kept the can. And he, yes, he kept the can for years. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, he put the can in his, his pocket. It was the Tour of Switzerland, yes, and he finished 14th overall, and it would have been higher, but um, by that time, Dietrich Thurau, great German star, young, yeah. uh, already as, as a teenager, was world champion on the track, had joined the team, and he was Post's blue-eyed boy because Post had a weakness for time trialists and track riders that were tall, elegant, and good-looking. Read into that what you want, <laughs> but he did. And... Um, and he, he, Tura was blocked, dropped from this break in the mountains and he made Dave go back for him. He said that he'd send him home if he didn't go, go back for him. So, uh, But Dave could do it. Yeah. So 75 was, you, you talk about uh, Didi Tura, but that was, the, I think Peter Post said, it was, the, it was the first true year for TI yeah. Rally. Yeah. Um, we now had the foundation replaced. The iconic jersey was, was in its second season. Yeah. Um, you'd added Jan Ras, Didi Tura, Roy Schutten. Um and it's, it's interesting that I, I, I put in my notes earlier that we're still competing in an era of Eddie Merckx and Roger de um, and they're holding their own at this point. Uh, yeah, very much so. They, they were. I mean, um, uh, Jan Rass and Turau came to the team and they were completely different backgrounds. Jan Rass had, had uh, quite unspectacular. He took up cycling late um you know, when he was 16 or 17, which was unusual for Dutch riders. They were usually much younger. Um, he'd won some amateur races and done quite done quite well, but he wasn't a big star like Turo was. But Jan Ras was Jan Ras, and he was already showing in the classics that what he could do and outshining Turo uh, in many of the races. So you could see the rider he was going to be. Roy Schouten was a huge talent, um, 
but him and Post fell out, as riders did. Yeah. Post said that it was over money. Post said that Scouting was obsessed with money, constantly thinking that Post had ripped him off. Maybe he was, or maybe he hadn't. Um, and um, he, he said, you, you know, you can't be obsessed as a young rider with money. You have to get the results, and then money looks after itself, he used to tell him, but they fell out. So already these conflicts were going on. It wasn't all, all the British riders. Uh, but the winner, the Post had started to establish herself in the Classics, and in 1976, he intended to ride the Tour of France and also the Vuelta Espana. So they were going to make their Grand Tour debut. And that's he needed a rider that could be a leader in the Tour of France. Uh, it was also the start of the year of, of um, Dutch cycling coming into its zenith. Um, they won all the road race world championships, uh, world titles at the world championships in Belgium that year. And the winner of the pro race was Henny Kuyper. And he'd already finished 11th in the Tour de France, so Post signed him for 1976. And this was the on track. This was Post's three-year plan to get to the, the yeah. Tour de France, wasn't it? With a, yeah. a further six-year plan we'll talk about later where he was to actually win the race. Yeah. Um, so he's going to – this is the year to go to the first two. But even the early part of the season, um, the you know the Vuelta in España – um, how many stage wins? I'm looking at one, two, three, four, five, eight. Yeah. Um, stage wins. The Didi Tourau winning time trial um, and the, the prologue. Jose De Cower, Henny Kuiper, Didi Tourau again, Gerben Karstens. A whole, like you said at the start, it wasn't just a team that was built around one guy to win races. We were seeing, you're already seeing here um, a team that can win, you know, can, can score goals from many positions. Yeah. Uh, and Kuiper nearly won the Vuelta overall. Yeah. It was only a crash in the final time trial. Um, you know, it was a great uh, debut. The Vuelta perhaps wasn't the big international race that it is now, but, uh, you know, the potential was there. The unfortunate thing was that, just to finish the Dave Lloyd story, Dave was told he'd done a good 1975 series uh, season. Post sent for him in it to have a meeting in Nottingham and told him that he would go into 1976. He would ride the Tour of France because he was the same size as Henny Kuiper. So he would have to be as near as possible to Henny Kuiper. So he told Dave to go away and train and make sure he was ready, which in those days also had other connotations. Yeah. Uh, I think, and then, but Dave is a bit of an obsessive character. He'll, he'll, I think sure he'll admit this himself. Getting ready for him was training and training and training and he caught a cold and he carried on training and that became flu and he tried to train. And he'd always had this heart arrhythmia. He, he was aware of it. He felt like it missed a beat sometimes. It didn't bother him, but it got worse and worse and worse. Um, and eventually he was um, he was told by loads of specialists, he went to see loads of specialists, that, yeah, it wouldn't affect his daily life, but riding the Tour of France was absolutely out of the question. So... His ambition to be a top rider, which he had a burning ambition to be a top pro, was ended there. And the TI Rally story had to continue without Dave and without any British riders then really featuring. Yeah. And the, it's almost the, the transformation, wasn't it, was, was complete into this. Yes. Dutch, you know, a, a European yeah. team, um, yeah. as we know them. Um, in, in the run up to the, the Tour de France, obviously, the, the Tour of Switzerland again features large. Um, Henny Kuiper won the, the race overall. He won a stage 
um, and the, the, the team won three stages at that. And then it was to the, the nineteen seventy six Tour de France. Um, yeah, their, their debut in cycling's great biggest stage. Yeah, that, there's just one thing you you put in your show notes that I'd like to cover because it just shows what Peter Post was like, um, and why my why uh, David Duffield recruited him. In the uh, Paris Nice, there was an incident where um, Jan Ras ah, was yes. relegated. Yeah, and um, and Post just didn't like it, and he, he, he we argued and everything because he was uh, Jeffrey Nicholson. His great book, the, the Greatest Race, which we'll talk about about because it's based on the nineteen seventy six um, Tour of France, said that Post was a QC of barrack room lawyers, and he, he took his argument to the top. The race director was then the great Jacques Anquetil, the first five times winner of the Tour of France. And he said that he, he wanted the decision reversing, and Anquetil made the mistake of turning his back on him and walking away. At which point, Post, who was like six foot two, Anquetil's about five foot eight, galloped round the front of him, barreled up to him, picked him up by his lapels <laughs> so he could <laughs> see him face to face and said, I want to meet him with you tonight, and then put him down. Um, the meeting never happened, but the uh, the, the and, and even the the, the the penalty wasn't reversed. But uh, later on, Peter Post said to a British journalist, David Saunders, that, that wasn't the point. They know they can't push us around now, yeah. and that'll that'll spread to other races. And that's that's what he was like. He was very physical. He, he you know he got into fights and all sorts yeah. of things. That's right. This this was the, the prologue at Paris Nice, wasn't it? Where I think. Yeah. Um, um, if, if I'm right, T- Turo uh, was second to Freddie Martins before the weather closed in, yeah, um, and which made a mockery of the race. So, uh, whilst the results stood, they wanted to neutralise the times, didn't they? Which yeah. upset yeah. Post greatly because they basically put a chunk of time into everybody else. So. <laughs> yeah, um, he was, yeah. Uh, but yeah, but then go to we we'll go forward to fast forward to the 1976 Tour de France debut. Yeah. Um, mission not quite a not quite accomplished, but uh, the first part um, of um, his uh, the, the story was, was largely complete. Um, it was a it wasn't a bad debut, um, two stage wins, yeah, um, and and Kuiper content, contended, yep, um, as he as he should have done. Um, they didn't get as many stage wins as as they perhaps could have done because it was the year of, of the great of Freddie Martins. It was the two. It was two years seventy six and seventy seven when Freddie Martins was just uh, omniscient in bunch finishes, in short time trials, everything, and he set the well shared the record of eight stage wins in one Tour of France. Yeah. Um, and actually could have won nine. He told me, I interviewed Freddie many years ago, and he told me that uh, his manager had been approached by the manager of Peugeot, and Peugeot, the sponsors, weren't happy with the team because they hadn't won the stage. And in one place, I think it was Dean, Dean Lehmann, um, they were sprinting with their sprinter, Jacques Esclasson, and Freddie, I mean, some money must have changed hands. Uh, Freddie put his brakes on and let Esclasson win, and now he's very disappointed that he hasn't got the record outright because he shares it with... uh, um, Eddie Merckx, who did it twice, like he did everything at least twice. And uh, I think Francis Pellissier of the Pellissier brothers with eight stage wins in one tour. And then, you know, first tour done um, and the the team continued um, picking up wins towards the end of the season. And then into into 77, um, I, I put 
in my notes that it was all about Didi Turao, yeah. um, which which I think only tell, tells part of the story, I guess. But the start of 1977 um, dominated the the Tour of Andalusia um, and really set the scene for for a great season for the for the German rider. Yeah, it, it was. Uh, I mean, he was class on a bike. He um, and the Tour of France was. Uh, the, the 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 start was near to the Pyrenees, so he won the prologue. He was great in short short time trials, longer time trials as well. Um, took the yellow jersey. There was a they went straight into the mountains. Um, it wasn't thought that he'd keep it. They went over the Tourmalet and the Pyrenees, but he did. Uh, he might have kept it because Kuiper got in a break with Tavernay, and I think Lucien van Imp with, with eventual top three in the race, and. Post told, because Toro was dropped, Post told Kuiper to stop working. And Kuiper thinks that maybe changed the dynamic, even though they were the eventual top three overall and yeah. he would have had to drop them at that stage. But he thinks it changed the dynamic. And then he then faced 11 days of having to work for Turao because it was flat all the way up France through Belgium and down into Germany because Rally really wanted Turo in the yellow jersey when the race came to his home city of Frankfurt yeah. and Germany was a big market for um for for Rally and Post was also was driven Post's prime goal was delivering for his sponsor what the sponsor wanted the sponsor got and uh, because he said that's what professional cycling is. You can talk about glory and all these other things, but they, they've got to keep the sponsor happy. And he was – stage wins, time in the yellow jersey was publicity. The sponsor's name was in the public eye, and that was more important, he felt, than even winning overall. Although, you know, if he could do both, that's what he wanted, and eventually he did. And yet yeah. – you know, as a hugely successful you know, second tour. I mean, eight stage wins, as you said, um, yeah. for any team in their second tour. Um, to, I think today's racing, I think you, you maybe give up at that point. <laughs> um, you know, what, what else is to be achieved? But uh, yeah, it was just a phenomenal performance by the team. And into 20, 1978, and it really, this is where the transition change wasn't it they came from being a team establishing itself on the on the stage to actually to just becoming the the best cycling team in the world yeah 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 it was by then i mean they were they were winning classics and uh, um 1978 uh they won the world championships with gary gary kenaterman yeah. you pronounce it right i i got i got it wrong um which was a great win, and it was typical of Knaterman. Knaterman had a, a certain amount of ability, but he was a rider that made um, the most of his ability. I know listeners will have heard Barry Hoban say that, that all the, the old the old managers used to say, if you're not the strongest, you have to be the craftiest. And the the way it's interesting, and it's a window on professional cycling at that time, the way that uh, Harry Knaterman won the 1978 World Championships on the Nürburgring, he was up against Francesco Moser in a two-man sprint at the end. Moser had won bunch sprints in the Tour of France. He'd got a great classics record. He was a great sprinter. He was the reigning world road race champion. He'd been the track pursuit champion the year before that. Everybody was betting on Moser to win. And but but Kinetum won. And Kinetum won by riding across on the opposite side of the road. There was a crosswind on the opposite side of the road to the win, starting his sprint there not going flat out and sort of encouraging Moser to come round him, which he did, sheltering him. And then shortly before the line, as Moser was going past, 
he started to sprint again and he just got him on the line. And it caused a, a, a huge furrow for, uh, for Moser because the Italian team had worked all day for him and he'd lost. And he'd lost to Kanatemann who can't sprint. So they've suspected, you know, the Dutch Cycling Federation, a Canadian or a rally, have paid him a load of money, and which happened in those days. And because of that, because they'd worked for him, they wanted their share. So, <laughs> so Moser had to go to Canadian and present him with this problem, and, and Canadian had to use whatever favors he could. And eventually, I believe, um, some money was paid to Moser. Just because, again, Kinetiman pragmatic, he didn't want a rider as talented as Francesco Moser being his enemy for the rest of his career. Yeah. So it was it was thinking beyond the bike. It was British. It was it was cycling um, in Europe as it was in those days, a business. Um, but Kinetiman, wonderful character. Everybody goes dewy eyed about him when you talk about him. Uh, he died at the age of fifty four of a heart attack, uh, which massive loss to uh, to cycling. But somebody I couldn't obviously interview for this, but oh, I would love to have interviewed for this. Yeah, but Kinetiman really bookended the season for the team. I mean, he won you know the, the first races in the Mediterranean. He won Paris Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, he won the Crystal Palace Grand Prix. Yeah, uh, over yeah. here. Wow. Yeah. Um, as well as, as um, stage two stages in the Tour that year. Um, and you know, bookended it with um, the World Championships, um, and we also saw Jan Ras um, in the early part of this season. It's it's, it's interesting. To think it's, it's not just about Grand Tours. Um, we saw Jan Ras winning one of what, five Amstel Gold races he won in, the, in his career. Yeah, yeah, so many that they started to call it the Amstel Gold Ras. Yeah, <laughs> see what they did there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Dutch humour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Henny Cooper, we'd spoken about um, in seventy or in the lead up, uh, left the team um, yeah. for nineteen seventy nine. Um, but the, the team uh, continued uh, its winning streaks. Um, it could continue to develop. I mean, I think at one point the the team's budget. Um, we, we think of what teams uh, Team Sky, anyway, sort of in the region of thirty five, forty million euros, aren't they, for yeah. a budget? Um, and the, the team's budget at that time was. Um, it maxed it from somewhere in the, the region of 11 million euros in, in modern money. So, in the equivalent, yeah, it wasn't 11 million then, it was the equivalent. No, it was, it was, of, a, mil, was that a million guilders, yes, something was, like that, yeah, yeah, but the, the equivalent to 11 million euros now, yeah, um, and carried them into to 1979, yeah, and um, that was a gr- another great year, the year that Jan Rass won the um, world championships in Valkenburg, and that yeah. was a, a home thing, like uh, Leo van Vliet told me, Valkenburg is outdoors but playing at home. Um, <laughs> and, and if you, you've gone into this years of, of Dutch dominance, already in 1976, Job Zutemel could won a second finish ever on outdoors. Uh, Henny Kuiper was to win in 77 as well. And I think seven Dutch riders won it in the next 11 finishes. This was when it became Dutch Mountain. So yeah. the Dutch cycling all came to a head in Valkenburg. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people on that circuit that finished on top of the Kauberg. And um, it was all for us in that Dutch team, just like it was with TI Rally. You, you would get... Belgian teams that were divided. Very often, Belgians won the lost the world championships because they wouldn't ride for each other. There was internecine squabbles where they, oh, I'm not working for him. I'm not working for him. Franz Verbeek told me that 
the they were you know they didn't prepare like a squad. They got together on the Saturday night Belgian team before a World Championships, and the team manager would say, "Well, who's up for this then?" And he says, "Everybody, put the hands up." <laughs> You know, I want to be the leader. I want to be the leader. Um, but the Dutch, were throughout the race, was completely for Jan Ras. Zutemelk sacrificed himself. Henny Kuyper sacrificed himself. Both were good on that circuit, but they knew if they could keep it together, the breakaway, Jan Ras could be anybody in the sprint. And uh, Henk Lubberding is a character that we want to bring into this because Henk Lubberding was absolutely unusual. He was a potential team leader. He won game ever game. He was twice Dutch champion, uh, national champion. He won the white jersey in his first Tour of France and finished in the top 10, I think eighth overall. He was really, really talented, but he didn't... He wanted... He won races, yeah. But his whole... Uh, career was about working for others and he took the most delight in working for others and when I interviewed him I asked him what was the high point of of your cycling career and he said it was working for Jan Ras in that breakaway to ensure a Jan Ras victory in 1979 <laughs> and they both after they'd done it he rode his socks out the last time up the Kauberg he had to keep it together so he had to ride so hard that it wouldn't drop Ras but the race couldn't split up, and he did. And then they, there was a tax came over the top. So then he, he stood on his dead self and chased down all the attacks and set it up for Ras to win by lengths uh, from Didi Torral and I think Jean Rene Bernardo. Um, and he said that the high point of his life was when they, they freewheeled to a halt and Ras turned round of him, tears in his eyes, big tough guy Jan Ras, uh, and embraced him, and they sobbed in each other's arms. And he says that was the the moment of my career. I absolutely love stories like that. But uh, um, I mean, again, Ras, like Nathan, the, the season before, really bookended his season um, in some style. I mean, in the space of a fortnight, he, he won, you know, the, what was the then the E3 prize, Harold Baker, um, the Tour yeah. of Flanders, Amstel Gold, um, and just, you know, blew, just set the classics alight um, in 1979. Um and you know, finished it off in style, as you said, at, at, at the, uh, the World Championships. Um, one change in the... I mean, we're always skipping past the, the Tour de France at this point. I'm going yeah. to rush to get to the, the climax of this. But again, another six stages in the Tour. Yeah. Uh, Nathaman winning the pro, prologue um, and, and the final stages won the team time trial, um, which was you know, one of the team's specialities, wasn't it, team time trials? Yeah. Yeah, they, they, uh, that was a post uh, delight as well. That was something he took pride in. I think they were undefeated for, for most of their existence, certainly between 90, their tour debut and the end. Nobody beat them in a team time trial. Sometimes there was two in a year in, a, in one tour. Yeah. Once there was a 140-kilometre one, uh, and he said that he did two things. The publicity pictures from a whole team in the same kit with the sponsor's name on it across the page, across the headlines, was fantastic. And he said that it just did other teams' heads in because they could see the strength of this team. So it was a particular thing that they um, they did. They they went they went for team time trials, and it was a foundation of a lot of their victories. Um, but of course, in seventy seven, at the end of seventy seven or, or seventy eight, they'd lost Kuiper. For 1979, yeah, and their 1979 tour was good for stage wins, but uh, one rider in the top ten, um, which wasn't 
you know, wasn't the the performance they wanted. And and bear in mind, Post had made this promise in six years or win the Tour of France, and he hadn't got a tour leader. So his second part of 1979 was to find a, a leader for the 1980 Tour of France because it was time for him to deliver a win. Well, I, I spoke earlier about budgets and having a, you know, a substantial but not you know, outrageous budget. And actually, um, I think he, his his first choice for that uh, that tour leader um, was Johan de Moink, who was a who was who said he was slightly insulted by the offer that was made to him. Yeah, yeah, he was. Uh, he, he said to Johan de Moink, who'd won the Giro out of surprise, and it was it was a good stage racer, really good stage racer. Um, the idea was that he would pay him a massive bonus if he won the Tour of France, but de Moink told me that his ordinary income wasn't anything to write home about you know if he didn't win the tour of france he wouldn't he wouldn't be earning as much as he did with italian teams so he didn't sign and also because at that point post had started to talk to job zutemelk who was available uh, at the end of his mercier contract um, i think it was caught mercier by then uh, or it might have been gam mercier still uh was up and he was dutch and um but again, Post had to beg, borrow, and steal to get to get Jop Zutemelk. Even Curry and Faith with his wife phoning his wife up saying how Jop would win with TI Rally. And he, he had to get the French uh, agent and French shops for TI Rally, for, for Rally bikes, to stump up more money to pay for Zutemelk. Because Zutemelk was a better. Uh, record in in Grand Tours than uh, than Dermont did, so he wasn't going to go for that amount of money or this bonus scheme. Uh, but eventually, he got it together and he signed Job Zutemelt for nineteen eighty. And the rest, is, and the is rest history, is history. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Zutemelt had shown in nineteen seventy nine that he was the only Bernardino was the Mercs. I mean, the Mercs. Bernardino was the Bernardino of his era. You can't say he was the Mercs of his era because he was fantastic. Um, probably behind Mercs as the second most successful cyclist ever. And he was just omniscient. Um, he'd, he'd won. He was winning every year and winning everything and winning the Tour of France such that the third, the, the second place rider would be eight to 10 minutes behind. The third was 15 to 20 minutes behind. Uh, but Zutemelk, I kept attacking him in 1979. He even attacked him on the last stage, and they had a ding-dong battle up and down the Champs-Élysées, trying to drop each other. Um, what Zutemelk was doing is already, it was three minutes and 30 seconds behind um, Eno at that time, but he, he really had took the fight to him, which had impressed Post, that, who said to him that, you know, if you hadn't have lost that time in Team Time Trials, which you wouldn't have done with us, you would have been even closer to Eno. The three minutes and 30 seconds needs a little bit of qualification because event you'll, if you look in the record books, you'll see he's 13 minutes and 30 yeah. seconds behind him because he failed a, a dope test um, on the on the last day, I think the last day or the last two days, and he's quite open about that at that time. I explain it in the book. At that time, a lot of Dutch people in Dutch cycling, the, some doctors thought that... that um, Treating with hormones, you know, was was a was a way of preserving the health of riders. That it was in accordance with their Hippocratic oath, because of course they didn't know about um, how to. They didn't know all the nutrition they know now. They didn't know all the rec recovery ways they know now. They didn't know when the body was stressed and how to avoid that, uh, which they do now with with custom made diets for each rider in a Grand Tour. 
so you know it's he did wrong he was caught he was quite open about it um and you know and his career went on and nobody bothered him he wasn't banned or anything he wasn't even thrown out the race he was just given a 10 minute penalty which was just enough to keep him in second place anyway because the 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 third place rider was 18 minutes behind (laughs) so really he got nothing yeah it's it's interesting to see the shift um to this to the into 1980 where you know we we know what happened in France. Whereas before we'd seen the team rampant in the early part of the season, they, they were still winning. Um, Jan Rass obviously won, won Amstel, um, and um, but we've seen riders like Henk Lubberding, who you spoke of, he won Gent Vevelgem, and um, but that's the, the race program just looks subtly different to the previous years, um, and we don't actually see Zutelmilk's name. Um, appear, you know, in the the, the list of wins until um, the Tour of Romandy, um, and then the Dauphiné, which obviously is has always traditionally been the, the precursor to the Tour, hasn't it? Even then, um, yeah. and yet when the team arrived um, for the for the depart, um, they just they blew the race apart from the, the offset, didn't they? Won the, they they, uh, they did, but but strangely, Zutemont wasn't uh, as good as he'd been the year before. He'd the 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 whole project of winning in nineteen eighty looked at risk because Zutemont had, had crashed early in the season, uh, broken about I don't know his collarbone or a bone in his leg. Um, I forget. And the, the 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 he was he would try to get back a bit too quickly, and that caused further injuries. And he was below par uh, Tour of Switzerland. He looked a bit better. Then he had a stomach problem in the Dutch National Championships. And early on in the race, um, Eno had continued his rampant form. That rampant form that saw him win Liege-Baston-Liege in a snowstorm by 10 minutes. He'd won the Giro d'Italia, obliterated the Italians so much so that no Italian team entered the uh, 1980 Tour of France. They didn't want another kicking on foreign soil. Uh, And there was a recession on in cycling at that time. And... um, the, 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 just, the teams couldn't see the sense in, in paying to get hammered and get criticised in the newspapers. Uh, and uh, But Zutemel wasn't firing very well. And there was the beginning of the discontent in the team because Post was, as usual, screaming, shouting, demanding stage wins, demanding riders look after Zutemelk. Uh, and they got the stage wins. But it wasn't until um, Zutemelk, you know, kept within... Uh, a reasonable amount from Hino, but then half Hino uh, was suffering from uh, tendonitis. He always had the problems with his knees and bad weather at the start of that tour. And it was a really long tour. There was two near 300 kilometre stages, uh, one after the other, um, one in one across the Ardennes and one on Paris Roubaix road. You know, I mean, 280 kilometres <laughs> of Liège Baston Liège and Paris Roubaix. Day as a, as a weekend, you know that's that's hard in the rain. Yeah, uh, and by the time they got to the Pyrenees, his knee wouldn't work. Tendonitis, you have to rest. You can't ride the Tour of France, so um, he had to re- retire from the race. He know did, and Zutamelk uh, took over the race lead. Wouldn't wear the yellow jersey next day out of a mark of respect. Um, and Zutamelk still below form. The team kept him good in the Pyrenees, came into his own a little bit more in the Alps, and Johan van der Velde, great young rider, another one I've been lucky enough to meet and interview for this, uh, stepped out of himself and, and really hauled Zutemelk 
over the Alps, up and down. Um, set him up for the Saint Etienne time trial, which he won, and they won the Tour of France. TI Rally, the British bike, won the Tour of France in 1980. Yep. Um, top two steps of the podium Zotemilk um, and Henny Kuiper. Um, yep. I'm just looking through the results here. Um, and. Johan Vandervelde, who you mentioned, um, won the, the best young rider as well. So 11 stage wins, white jersey, yeah. yellow jersey in second place. Um, <laughs> at this point, you know, mission accomplished, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, in second place, uh, that's for TRL. Remember that Kuiper had gone now to Peugeot BP, but that was the strength of of, um, of Dutch cycling at that time. Um yeah, it was mission accomplished, and there was great celebration, and and it was a, a feeling of accomplishment back in in Nottingham, and the riders came to Nottingham to ride city centre circuit race as part of the post tour criteriums. They were making appearances at the special development unit and the factory, and everybody who worked on the bikes had their pictures took with riders. The, the yellow jersey was presented um, to to uh, Gerald O'Donovan, who was the designer of the bikes and oversaw the, the special development unit in Ilkeston. And he got the time trial plate for the cars, uh, which my friend Dave Marsh has got, because he was a close friend with uh, Gerald, um, for a Zutamelt's car in that Tour of France. And and Gerald always made sure that everybody in the team, and this is another like Ineos and Jumbo Visma, that everybody in the SPDU and working for Rally they won the Tour of France together. That was different to how teams had been before. The factory was just, you know, they served bikes. When Barry Hoban turned pro for Mercier, to get his first bike, he went to Saint-Étienne to the Mercier factory and the former went, oh, yeah, look, you you look about a 57 and just pulled one off the production line and said, there you are. But every bike with the SPDU was made to measure, designed by Gerald O'Donovan, and everything they could use like radial spokes and um, braised on um, things to, to guide the cables and gear hangers and stuff like that. 753 tube in the lightest steel tubing. They were all used for all the riders, not just the team leader didn't get 753. Everybody got made to measure 753 bikes. Um, and it was just the best equipment you can possibly get. And there's a, a club called the TRL Vintage Club run by a Scotsman. Um, Lawrence Morgan and they've preserved these bikes and the bikes appear in the book Lawrence has got Hank Lubbeding's 1983 time trial bike he's got Jerry Kanateman's bike yeah uh, there's a gorgeous spread in the book that just shows them off uh, yeah 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 and they, they, they are things of beauty I can see the attraction and the jersey it was designed by the man who designed the the rally chopper the jersey is iconic probably the first really modern style of cycling jersey um, and as speaking of style, as worn by Paul Weller and the Style Council. Um, as worn by Paul Weller and the Style Council, yes. Yeah, yes. The video for uh, my ever-changing moods, I think. Yeah. Uh, don't, don't ask me what uh, um, his partner in musical, I was going to say crime, what's his name? I don't know. The other guy, know. he was wearing another iconic-ish jersey, a bit, bit more hipstery. Um, yeah, I'll need to go and look that one up. Um, but yeah, um, the... That that bike, in fact, was was reproduced uh, in twenty twenty, wasn't it, for the uh, the fortieth anniversary? Yes, yes. With with with, I don't think with quite the design flair um, that Gerald's bikes had. Uh, it looked it looked a bit sort of upright to me, but um, it did. Yeah, and it, it didn't. It was something that they they felt they did. But the the bike is nice, and everybody I know who's bought one says it rides really nice, and the, the steel bikes do. I mean, yeah. 
that's the whole idea of the Tom Simpson Retro Ride, a celebration, a weekend of, it's going to be three days next year, of celebrating steel bikes. Absolutely. A shameless plug there, Chris. Um, <laughs> 1980 was was where the, the, the TI rally, or um, rally creed as they were now, wasn't it? Um, yeah. The, the, the stars shone most most brightly. And you could almost be forgiven that there was a, there was a descent. In fact, I put it in my show notes, there was the descent to implosion. And that's, that doesn't tell the story by any way, shape, or form. I mean, the, the team continued um, to be successful. Um, you know, in 1981, Jan Rass was back to... Um, Winning Het Volk, Harold Baker, um, Gent Vevelgem, um, and so on. But they never quite hit the, the heights in the tour, did they? I mean, they, they won a meager <laughs> seven stages. Um, <laughs> yeah, they, 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 uh, they, 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 the, the, the wind had gone out the sails of the team a bit. I mean, they were very professional on the face of it, they were winning. Um, but, uh, I mean, I say in the book that post drive, relentless drive created the team and it also destroyed it because he'd never let off. He never let off. These riders were young in 1975, but he was on their backs just the same in 1980, 1981. And they were tired as well. You know, they really had to haul Zutamelk about to win yeah. that race. And he expected them to be on form all year, every year. Uh, and as big as Post was a big character, Russ was a big character. Russ was older. He, you know, he wasn't going to be talked to by Post. And they were both imposing figures uh, like a child. Henny Kuiper left because of that. Yeah. Post really liked Kuiper. He said it was a great, great rider. And, and Post says, yeah, and as a manager, he was good for somebody like Leo Van Vliet who needed a kick up the arse and was lazy. But he said, I didn't need that. I'd done everything I possibly could to win a race. And if I didn't win, it was no good post shouting at me because I couldn't have done anything else. And he didn't, he said he just used this one management type for everybody. And it, as the riders got older, it really wound them up, you know, and they were doing things like he wouldn't allow alcohol. You know, they couldn't have a beer a, a thing and they would sneak off and have a beer. And because he caught two riders having a beer um, the night before Genveville game, that uh, Frank Host was one of them. Uh, he, he sacked Frank Host next day. And uh, Host said, we said, but you've got to ride the race. I can't send you home. I need you for Gent Bevelgen. And luckily for Host, he won. <laughs> he won Gent Bevelgen. <laughs> and uh, and um, he said that Post never mentioned it again. He, he did do that. Sometimes if he got you down, he, a lot of them have said, well, you didn't have to listen to him. Leo Van Vliet told me that he sacked him five times one year. <laughs> and I went to a, a reunion. That's where I got the idea of doing this book. It was about 2008. There was a reunion, CRL. I'd, I'd gone to do an interview with Henny Kuiper for Cycle Sport magazine. He, he's, he, he was Mr. Generosity. He says, he's always thinking about other people. He says, if you come to Valveik, this near Tilburg on such and such a day, we're having a reunion, you can interview me. You can ride with us and you can talk to some of the other guys. And we did. We rode to to see an old team manager and then we rode back to this hotel and there was a, there was a tea and a meal out and, and Post was there. So I got a chance to talk to Post. But he was trying to play everybody's nice uncle at that rate, you know. And uh, Leo Van Vliet says, do you remember that race that I won? You'd sacked me the day before. And Post's going, oh, no, no, it can't have been me. It was. It must have been somebody else <laughs> knowing damn well. Of course it, of course it was him. Um, so there's, there's those conflicting stories, but he was a hard guy and he didn't let up and yeah. it certainly wound Rass up. And so the team was gradually fracturing a core of around posts that were faithful to posts, whatever, and a core that had gravitated towards uh, Jan Rass. 
and Yanras wanted out, and he was talking to another team, a sponsor, Quantum, a, a chain store, a kitchen homeware chain store, um, about uh, forming a team. And in 19, uh, 1984, he got, you know, Rally said whether we were going to pull out for 1984 as the headline sponsor and still supply the bikes. Ras had his team, and I think he took so many of the riders with him and so many of the riders stayed with Post, who'd got Panasonic to sponsor the team. And that was the end of TI Rally. It ended in a bit of acrimony. It was the start of a huge feud between Ras and Post. Uh, Ras had an accident that first year uh, that he was riding for Quantum, and he was too badly injured uh, to to get back quickly, so he took over the management. And as managers, they actually lost races just to beat each other, <laughs> which was, is ludicrous. But yeah, it's the but that that feud continued until what nineteen ninety two, wasn't it? A stage yeah, of the tour. Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, yeah, it continued till then, um, and by then. They were they were just constantly falling out, and what was the, what was the particular stage in the tour you're thinking about? Um, there was a stool where two of the right, um, Franz Masson and Marc Sargent um, yeah. refused to work with each other. Yeah, um, and it yeah. was Jean Claude Colletti, was it, who who yes. won the stage? And yes. just it kicked off after that. <laughs> and uh, they did, and then Post by then was getting older, and he, he did couldn't find a sponsor when Panasonic would their contract was up. Uh, Ras was much younger, of course. Yeah. <clears throat> went on to attract. He had several different sponsors, and that team that he ran and created became Rabobank, became Jumbo Visma. So the fingerprint, the DNA of TI Rally is in Jumbo Visma yeah. today. Um, it's a set, another story. Ras was. Uh, ejected by Rabobank at one point uh, when, but again, I think that was because management started to try and get involved, um, which Ras couldn't put up with. Yeah, know. but it was a fantastic story. I only go as far as the end of Ti Rally because that's the story. It's Ti Rally, um, yeah. but but uh, yeah, we could have done another book about Panasonic. Absolutely, but it's just it's a story that encompasses. As I said, it's that you know, we have the era of of Merckx. Um, at the very beginning, and he, he pops up again in the middle yeah. of the story, um, yeah. and yet it continues into this this story, which leads you know, leads us to the era of um, you know Jumbo Visma and and all yeah. that entails. Um, Chris, I could we could talk about this all night if given <laughs> half a chance, um, cool. and, and, and one day we will, uh, hopefully involving alcohol or something at some point, <laughs> but. How how can we how can we get hold of your book, which is right. absolutely good. You can. Uh, it's called uh, Cycling Legend Zero Two Ti Rally. You buy direct from the website www.cyclinglegends.co.uk, or I will be doing a UK wide tour that starts on the twenty seventh of October. Um, where I'll be going and doing talks and you can buy it there. I've got a TI Rally team mic with me and some memorabilia. But buy direct. Don't don't wait for me to come to you. Because <laughs> yeah. by buying direct, not only do you get a really nice book, um, it's like the Tom Simpson one we did. It's the second in this illustrated book series. You're helping to create 03, which is going to come out next year, and 04. We're going to try to get two out next year, um, as well as two standard books. Uh, that's the ambition next year. Um, so yeah, cyclinglegends.co.uk. Yeah, and you you 
mentioned um, Cycling Legend Zero One, um, the Tom Simpson book, which I would I would encourage you if you haven't already done so to read as well. Which is just you think you know the story of Tom Simpson. Um, think again. It's, it's yeah, a great book. Yeah, yeah. And Chris, where can we find you on social media? Uh, at Chris Sidwells uh, on um, on Twitter, the same on uh, Instagram, on, on Facebook as well. Uh, you know, just Chris Sidwells. I don't hide behind any, any identities. Um, <laughs> and we've got a Cycling Legends uh, page on um, Facebook, cyclinglegends.co.uk, which will be, you'll see uh, tour dates for doing the UK tours and also... Um, We've we've got a Cycling Legends page on Twitter, just Cycling Legends 1, at Cycling Legends 1. Yeah, you can find all the news there. You can also, um, if you haven't done, if you've enjoyed this show um, and haven't done so already, you can subscribe through the cyclinglegendspodcast.com um, website. Um, you'll also find me, if you're interested, at the Gary Fairley um, on Twitter and very occasionally on the web at 2017th.com. Chris, it's been a joy. I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully catching up with you during the, the UK tour. Um, but in the meantime, we'll be back soon with another Cycling History Show. Cheers for now. Cheers.